This is Peter Fader, co-author of The Customer Centricity Playbook, Implement a Winning Strategy Driven by Customer Lifetime Value, and you are listening to The Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on The Marketing Book Podcast, each week, I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas in order to succeed in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. Also, I'd like to thank our sponsor Blinkist. Blinkist is an app that takes the key insights from the best nonfiction books and distills them into a format that you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes on your smartphone. Several of the books featured on the Marketing Book Podcast are on Blinkist. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer for Marketing Book Podcast listeners where you can sign up for free at Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast. Blinkist is spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. And if you opt for the paid version, you'll get an additional 20% off, but only if you go to Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast or just click on the link at marketingbookpodcast.com. And now, on with the show. Today, we welcome Peter Fader to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about the book he has co-authored with Sarah Toms, The Customer Centricity Playbook, Implement a Winning Strategy Driven by Customer Lifetime Value, published by Wharton Digital Press. Peter Fader is the Francis and Paywan Cha Professor of Marketing at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. His expertise centers on topics such as customer relationship management, lifetime value of the customer, and strategies that arise from these data-driven tactics. In addition to his various roles and responsibilities at Wharton, Professor Fader co-founded a predictive analytics firm, Zodiac, in 2015, which was sold to Nike in 2018. He then co-founded and continues to run Theta Equity Partners to commercialize his more recent work on customer-based corporate valuation. He is the author of Customer Centricity, Focus on the Right Customers for Strategic Advantage, and he's been quoted or featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The Economist, The Washington Post, and on National Public Radio, among other media. And in 2017, Professor Fader was named by Advertising Age as one of its inaugural 25 marketing technology trailblazers and was the only academic on that list. And interesting fact, he was a math major at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Professor Fader, congratulations on the Customer Centricity Playbook, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you so much, Doug. I don't know where we can go from there, but uh, well, let's see what ground we can cover. Well, you know, I've had several other authors with MIT degrees. I think there's a trend here. There's just lots of MIT folks and uh, engineering people with engineering degrees who are now writing books about marketing and sales, and it reminds me of that saying that marketing has gone from madmen to math men. Did you know uh, that when you were a math major at MIT that you might one day be going into the field of marketing? How did, how did it, that happen? It's a, such an interesting story. 
I didn't know it, but my fairy godmother did. <laughs> there was a professor there. I was, again, I was a math major. Just occasionally I would take courses over at the Sloan School, the business school. Mm-hmm. And um, this one professor, <clears throat> marketing professor, said, you ought to get a Ph.D. in marketing. And I said, you ought to get your head checked. Uh, but she, this was 1983. Did you think that she, was an insult? Uh, well, I was a rotten kid. And so she, that's the great thing about her is that she was incredibly tolerant and persistent. And she laid out this vision of what marketing would become with you know big data and targeting and customization and personalization. And she said, you know, the kind of quant skills you have, it might not seem like they fit into marketing today, but they will. And she was 100% right. And I'm just so thankful because not many people wake up and say, I want to become a marketing professor. Uh, And so it's kind of my job to continue to pay it forward to other folks who are kind of equally unlikely to, to see the light themselves. Oh, that's terrific. And there, I, that's an unbelievably prescient on the part of your uh, professor to identify that you know, years ago. Yeah, indeed. And, and it's why even today, uh, 30-odd years later, I, I continue to call her up. This is a Professor Lee McAllister, now at the University of Texas, and she continues to be just a real visionary, not only about the inputs into marketing, the data and all that, but but the practices and the perspectives about it. So really, I, I'm seen as a thought leader now, but I really, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants who, who really were just much more foresightful than I ever will be. Oh, terrific. So uh, I interviewed one of your colleagues, Jonah Berger. Sure thing. And uh, she was, he's probably down the hall. I, he wrote Invisible Influence. And now that I'm interviewing you, I'm thinking maybe I could just try to work my way down the whole hall uh, and interview all your colleagues who, uh, who publish books about uh, marketing. But uh, now you sold your company to Nike. Just curious, mm-hmm. are you wearing Nikes right now? You know, I don't think I own a single piece of Nike clothing or, or uh, accessories of, of any kind. Oh. <laughs> it's not that I boycott them. In fact, I, I, I love the company. Uh, but it, it is kind of interesting. Uh, that immediately, when we sold the company, so many people were saying, so, do you get the employee discount? Um, <laughs> Did you get some swag? Well, exactly. So I'm still kind of waiting. Um, <laughs> but but really, more than, than, than that, it's it's been um, wonderful to see uh, how Nike has been uh, em- embracing what we were doing at Zodiac and really uh, moving its own mission forward. Oh, terrific, terrific. Well, listen, you may not be getting some <laughs> Nike swag, but I have something I'm going to send you. A- and no other author has received this on the Marketing Book Podcast. So my uh, wife grew up in Philadelphia. Her father was a physician there in, in that area. And before he became a physician, he was actually a folk singer in, uh, in New York wow. City after he came back from World War II. But he was a big musician, a great collector, and uh, recently uh, we've had to figure out what to do with this enormous vinyl record collection. And in the collection, there was, uh, and there is, an album from the University of Pennsylvania Glee Club, All right. and it's folk songs from <laughs> around the world. This must have been from the 1950s or 60s, and uh-huh. it's, it's going to you. Now, I, I hope you enjoy it. I hope you can find a record player to play on it. And if you, and if you don't, if it's not your thing, you can walk down the hall on Jonah Berger's birthday and just say, hey, I got you something. <laughs> or, or, or you can give I it to the Glee Club. My students in the Glee Club. Exactly. Yeah. No, plenty of them. It's a very talented group. So oh, yeah. bring it on. I love okay. it. Okay. Nice. Well, it's going to be, a, it's going to be heading your way. Now, the book, it's surprisingly short. 
104 pages. And I thank you for that. And it also brings to mind how difficult it must have been to write it because of the Mark Twain saying, I didn't have time to write a short letter, so I wrote a long one instead. Uh, It's amazing. And the other thing I just want to mention, just because I read all these books, that which is my joy to do, is uh, you have a PhD. There have been a few books written by PhDs, and it's really hard for them not to write for other PhDs. That's, that's their, I think it's their background. So it's really more an observation than a criticism. That was not the case with this one. Maybe it was uh, your, your background, but also uh, maybe your co-author, but this was clearly not written for the other PhDs. So even a knuckleheaded podcaster was able to, to uh, really enjoy it. Well, that's a quite a compliment. And I actually take that very seriously. It actually goes back to our, our uh, earlier part of the conversation where I don't, even though I've been doing this for 30 odd years and I'm proud to be a professor here, I don't see myself as an, you know, egghead academic. I, I really take my job seriously in terms of <clears throat> bringing knowledge to companies and managers. And if I can't get them interested in my research, then I question whether I should be doing that research at all. Well, and it also points to the fact that you've had these businesses. Um, they're not, <laughs> as much as they might be interested, they're, you've, you've got to boil it down for the non-academics uh, who probably there are a lot fewer of them in, in the business world than in, in your academic world. And the problem is that most practitioners look at what ac- academics do and say that 99% of it is ivory tower garbage. And they're right. <laughs> Um, but I pride myself as being part of the 1%. And and the thing is that when you can find the 1% of people who are doing leading-edge academic work, but it really is driven by and applicable to practical problems, uh, I'd like to believe that that's pure gold, that we can really change practice and not just kind of you know, tweak it a little bit. Absolutely, absolutely. So I want to start with an excerpt from the beginning of the book. With 18 Olympic gold medals, Michael Phelps is the most decorated athlete of all time. It isn't surprising to learn that his training regimen would challenge demigods. At peak season, he clocks 50 miles per week in the pool and yet more hours in the gym. For other athletes wishing to join Phelps ranks, this all sounds like a simple enough formula to replicate. Train hard, eat smart, get stronger, perform better, win Olympic gold. The problem is that training and nutrition alone can't guarantee Phelps' impressive collection of Olympic bling. So why did you start your book with a story about Michael Phelps? Two good reasons. Turns out that Sarah Toms, my co-author and myself, are both very avid swimmers. Uh, she's actually very accomplished. She used to swim at a Division I level in college. I, I'm just, uh, you know, do my mile and a half every morning. So we're, we're passionate about swimming. But more than anything, it, it really is a great metaphor uh, for what you can and can't do in marketing. See, the problem is there's a lot of companies out there that feel we can just go out there and acquire customers real cheap and then convert them, transform them, educate them to be good customers. And that turns out to be really, really, really hard to do in the same way that it's really hard to just to turn me into Michael Phelps. Uh, so the, the idea of, of customer development is way overrated. Uh, and it's much more important to be able to kind of find good customers who were just born that way. It's something that I really believe in, and I think it's a very vivid metaphor to, to bring across the, the distinctiveness of, of, of particular individuals that applies to marketing as well as it applies to swimming. 
Right. You go on to say, even before a customer makes their first purchase with you, much of their potential value is already there. Just as Phelps' natural physical advantages were there before he was born. Sure, you can drag customers into the marketing and sales gym to develop their value a bit further, but by how much really depends on the number of predetermined factors that you don't have much if any control over. You certainly won't be able to transform the vast majority of your base into your best, most Phelps-like class of customer. On the other hand, Knowing who your best customers are is not as clear as separating the winners from the losers in a quick swimming race. To get the clearest picture of a customer's value means harnessing the insights that come from playing a long game, one that projects their entire lifetime with you. That's what this book is about. So you write that even if customers look the same on the surface, not all customers are the same. And that's a principle that's fundamental to customer centricity. I- explain. Well, indeed. So, so all, all, all customers are, are, are different. And let's get real specific about it. We're not just talking about how they look or how they talk or who they interact with. Uh, we're talking about their, their, their future projected financial value. So I'm talking dollars and cents here, not some, some wishy-washy <laughs> concept. I want to be held accountable. When I score a customer base and put some at the top and some towards the bottom, uh, that's in terms of dollars and cents, uh, and that's what I do for a living: is is develop these models that will take historic data, and give a glimpse as to what the future will be. And the first thing that really hits you is, my goodness, these customers are so vastly different in value that if we just aim for the middle, if we aim for the average, we're really missing out and not characterizing them very well. Right. So before we talk about how to dive in a little bit more to get some of that information. You know, I see customer centricity, and I think that a lot of people, maybe some listeners, might be thinking, oh, this is about customer service, or it's about being nice to our customers, or what I think is rampant is this lip service of, oh, yeah, we're, we're customer-oriented. Mm-hmm. What are some of the big myths and misperceptions about the customer centricity that is covered in this book? Yeah, it drives me crazy. And and actually, and maybe I'm partially to blame because that the, the title, customer centricity, is kind of misleading. A lot of people hear and say, oh, yeah, 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 we surround ourselves around each and every customer. That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, I'm saying, who are the customers we should be centered around? And the other ones are, you know, eh, we're glad to do business with them, but it's going to be on our terms and they shouldn't expect the same kind of, of treatment and, and attention as, as the really valuable ones. Mm-hmm. But again, there's these vast differences across customers. And if we can find ways to capitalize on it, we can make more money than if we just aim at the average customer. Right. So for the purpose of this discussion, uh, provide the listener with a working definition of customer centricity. And by that, I mean, explain CLV, customer lifetime value. So it's separate issues. Let, let's take them one at a time. So, so customer centricity, again, it begins in the, not just the belief, but the hard fact that all customers are quite different from each other. And if we can figure out who the best ones are, that's where customer lifetime value comes in, the ones who are most valuable to us move, moving ahead. If we can figure out who they are, that's step one. Step two, if we can find ways to enhance that value, to surround them with a variety of products and services, some of which we might not even make any money on, but it's a way to demonstrate to them that we're in it for the long run and we really want this ongoing relationship. We want you to see us as a trusted advisor. 
If we can do that to figure out the products and services that are right for them, not just the ones that we want to push on them, but the ones that are right for them, uh, and do so in a way that we kind of take price off the table, but they're not just playing us off against somebody else, mm-hmm. but they, they know that we have their best interest in mind and, and they just, they're not going to nickel and dime us and we're not going to do it to them. And then importantly, if we can find more like them, other customers who seem to have the same profile, behavioral profile that they do, if we can enhance the value, extract the value and find more like them, then, then we can make more money than just focusing on the products and services. That's what customer centricity is all about. And again, it all spins around this notion, this formula of customer lifetime value. So should marketing people, well, assume that's who's a lot of listeners here as well as sales folks, should they be turning to their CFOs to help get the, some of that research and answers to who these best customers are? That has been one of the biggest revelations to me just in in the last year or two. Yes, yes, yes. You know, I've been going to companies, going mostly to marketing, since I'm a marketing professor, saying, hey, I got this this customer lifetime value magic wand. You ought to figure out how to work it. And a lot of the marketers, for various reasons, are distrustful. They just don't believe it. Uh, and it's, it's been, I don't want to say it's, it, it's, it's been good. I don't want to say it's been disappointing, but it hasn't been nearly as effective trying to win over marketers. Whereas CFOs, they understand forecasts. They understand balancing risk and reward. Uh, and so they get it. They totally understand uh, the value of these models, how to assess them, how to use them. Uh, and so very recently with my, my newer startup, we really are focusing much more on financial applications of these very same models that marketers would ordinarily be using to decide which ad to show to which person at which time. And that's beautiful when it all comes together like that. Well, and it's also you're helping companies with their valuations. That's it. So we're doing customer-based corporate valuation through my new company, Theta Equity Partners. Uh, we're basically saying if we can project how many customers you're going to acquire, how long they're going to stay, how many transactions they'll make over that horizon, and how valuable those transactions will be. Not only is it interesting to forecast those four things by themselves, but if we combine them together, well, that's the overall value of the enterprise. Uh, and, and having this bottom-up view is actually going to be more effective, more accurate, more diagnostic, more actionable than the usual top-down way that finance people approach it. So it's been great fun uh, having the conversation kind of on their terms, but showing us that our models and perspectives for marketing can actually help them do their job better. Mm. You know, that story just makes my hair hurt a little bit, hearing about marketers being a little resistant to this, but the uh, financial types liking it. And that's because in in many books and through my experience and all that, there are still way too many people in the C-suite, maybe in the sales department, whatever, who who still look upon marketers, some marketers, as arts and crafts party planners mm-hmm. who work in the Make It Pretty department. And when I've gone off and given talks, I've talked about um, some of the other books that implore marketers to get in the revenue camp. And it seems to me that if a marketer starts to talk to their CFO about the topics in your book about customer centricity, they're going to be perceived very differently and much more favorably, I would think. Yes, it's a, it really is a good Rorschach test to see how a marketer responds to these models, to these strategies. And there are some who get it. 
uh, many and more and more every day. Uh, but others who will either um, either say, oh, there's someone who works for someone who works for me. They do that stuff, but not me. I'm Ooh. too busy. I'm focusing on the brand. Uh, and some who just kind of reject it outright, saying, oh, that might work in other more predictable businesses, but ours is in a, is in a state of constant turmoil, and we just couldn't trust those predictions. Uh, uh, so, you know, you can keep your academic toys. So, you know, so lots of different kinds of pushback. But I'm happy to say that, that every day there, there's more acceptance of it, especially when we can show that other people in the organization are uh, embracing these ideas as well. And also because marketing is going from madmen to mathmen. Did I mention that? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? You can't say it enough. And, and I just wish that the that transformation, that revolution were, were happening more quickly. Yeah, yeah. So explain let's talk about the three p's preference propensity and potential explain the concept of of customer goodness i guess as a way to help the folks listening understand some of the things they should be looking at for what makes for this uh the best customer i'm glad you noticed that doug so so it's my job to come up with these lifetime value models and and again it sounds kind of like a mystery like how do you know so it's important for me to to tell the story about what's going on under the surface that's, that sorts these these customers uh, out from each other. Uh, and so we, we use that, that QC3Ps thing uh, just as a way to let, let's get a little bit more to the psychology of it. And, you know, there are some customers, fortunately, all businesses have them, sometimes not enough of them, who will go through the gates of hell to stay with you, that they, they, they love the products and services that you offer. You know that as soon as you offer a new one, they're going to be first in line to buy it. They're relatively cheap to serve. They don't complain much. Uh, they, they, they refer great customers. Uh, it, it's that. There are some customers who, for a variety of reasons, are just have great karma with us. And I think any company would agree that, man, if we could just find more like them, that life would be so much better, so much easier. And that's my point, is let's double down on those kinds of customers instead of looking at the eh, so-so ones and trying to transform them into that. That's back to the Phelps story. Mm -hmm. So the preference, propensity, and, and potential? So the, the propensities would just be your, your true, underlying, unobservable propensity to stay with the company or churn, uh, to, to, to buy more stuff from them, to refer others. You know, there's just something going on inside that we can't observe. It's not tied to your demographics. It's not tied to psychographics or, or your zip code or what kind of car you drive. Right. Uh, but some people just, they, they like the stuff that you do. And, and as much as we'd like to look at people and put them in buckets, here are the lovers, here are the haters, it, it's hard to do that in, in any other way uh, other than looking at their past purchasing. Uh, and kind of inferring their preferences, for instance. And so it, it really is, and on one hand, kind of boring. I just want to look at transaction logs. I'm not interested in what you're doing with social media. I'm not interested in geolocation or biometrics or all these cool techie flavor of the month things. You just tell me who bought what when, and that's going to let me make pretty good projections about who will continue to do it in the future. Mm. So... I've given this talk in the past to manufacturers, and it's titled, Stop Talking About Your Product First. <laughs> and I always think I'm going to be thrown off the stage for giving it, but it, it hasn't happened yet, because you know, those kinds of folks, as well as many companies, are very product-focused. So you explain that the enemy of customer centricity is product centricity. 
why and, and remind listeners of the downsides of that. Sure. So, so look, I don't want to suggest that, that product centricity is a recipe for disaster and that all companies that obsess over the product are doomed to fail. I'm not saying anything like that. They're just doing fact, it the hard for, way. Uh, but for a lot of companies, focusing on the product might be the right thing, but not for all of them. Uh, and that's the problem is that's all we know is that we, we celebrate innovation and efficiency. Let's just develop new things. Let's just do it faster. Uh, and I'm saying there's another alternative out here that if we can see the value of our customers and use that to drive the choices of what kinds of products we want to develop or sell. In other words, starting with the customers as opposed to starting with the product and saying, huh, who are the customers who would like this? A lot of companies out there who, who look at the world that way and think that they're being customer-centric, but again, they're starting with the product and they, they're organized around the product, they're held accountable by the product, that's not customer-centricity. Yeah, it brings to mind a book I read years ago called Where the Sucker's Moon, and it was by, uh, yes. I think it was Randall Rothenberg, who was the New York yeah. Times ad, uh -huh. uh, ad columnist, and it was about the it was an ad book, but it was like about the Subaru looking for an ad agency. And in one part of the book, they talked about how Subaru versus Toyota since World War II, Subaru run by engineers, uh, and they would engineer the best possible product they could, often you know, even better than it needed to be. And then they would turn to basically marketing and so forth and say, all right, now go, go sell it. Whereas Toyota would sit down with people and try and figure out what it is they wanted first. Right. Then they would turn to all the machinery and say, okay, that's what you need to go make. Big difference and uh, probably still played out by the fact that uh, Toyota is much bigger than, uh, uh, than Subaru. So and all I want to do is go uh, one step further. So that's a big step in the right direction. Uh, but I want to go one step further to figure out who are the customers we should be focusing on in the first place. Yes. It shouldn't be the average customer. Or any customer. Yeah, exactly. It should be the high value ones that if we knew who they were, if the magic lifetime value wand worked and you could see the numbers shining over every customer's heads, you'd automatically know, hey, those are the customers we should be talking to over there. You know, forget about everybody else, but let's figure out what it is that they want in a design, not what kind of design will be as broadly popular as possible. I mean, that's a really big distinction. And a lot of companies have a hard time coming to grips with it. Mm. So if I had to pick my favorite chapter, it would, it would be chapter two. Um, and it was about customer acquisition and growing your best customer base. And you talked about some things that brought to mind another book that was on the podcast by Aaron Ross, uh, his mm -hmm. book, From Impossible to Inevitable. And he talks about the three types of lead generation activities, seeds, spears, and nets. And mm -hmm. uh, sure enough, you started talking about fishing with a net versus fishing with a spear. Uh, it, explain that. And, and also, uh, could you talk about the paradox of customer centricity? Absolutely. So the, the spears versus the nets. So, so when it comes to customer acquisition, if you take what I just said a moment ago, a little bit too literally, uh, I seem to be implying that we should only be doing the spear fishing, that we should figure out who those just right customers are, the really high value ones, and just go after ones like them. Sounds good, but it's a little bit too oversimplified. Uh, easier said than done. It's, it's not obvious. Again, you can't just look at a customer's profile and say, well, that's a guaranteed good one. So as much as we want to do that, we still have to be 
kind of throwing those nets out there and, and doing our acquisition on, on a broader basis so we can learn. Every time we throw the nets out, we'll get a little bit smarter. We'll kind of toss it out in a slightly better direction. We'll get a slightly higher yield of the good fish. Uh, but it's never the case that, that every one we catch is going to be, you know, to use the, the parlance, a whale. <laughs> Although you don't catch, well, anyway, whatever. Um, uh, so, so, so it has to be this, this kind of balance of getting ever smarter, uh, but still uh, kind of exploring the possibilities. And you'd be wrong to say that we have figured it out. We know exactly where the good customers, exclusively the good customers are swimming around, and that's the only place we'll be fishing from now on. Life just isn't that easy, and the world is just messier and more complicated. Well, yes, except the humans, particularly humans that are uh, pursuing marketing are always looking for the, the easy button. But you, you do say spearing is not the best acquisition strategy for all situations. And you, you talk about how the insights gained by the spear throwers, so more of the um, active prospecting mm -hmm. selection, the the insights they have actually help you uh, to identify better places to cast the nets. And that may seem like a subtle difference to listeners, but it really resonated with us because at our agency, we've, you know, we're in the nets business. We're helping these clients generate leads. Mm -hmm. But now we don't do that anymore until after they can tell us where they're throwing the spears or after they've set up a program of the spears because yeah it's so important to have that yeah. coordination and and look there's just so many companies out there where they're doing the different kinds of acquisition kind of the, the more spear oriented we know who we're going after versus the more net oriented they're being done entirely separately sometimes oh. they're being done by completely different agencies with no coordination between them and, and that's problematic because there really is learning that should be going both ways for, from one to the other uh, and it is the company's responsibility to be coordinating that, not the agencies themselves. Uh, but companies just think, yeah, we'll do a little bit of this acquisition, a little bit of that acquisition, and we'll just hope for the best. We should be doing better than that. <laughs> well, even at our level, when they say, well, these, uh, if, if a client were to say, these leads aren't good, well, then we can come back and say, well, now, wait a minute, I'm confused. This exact, these leads exactly fit the profile of who you said you're throwing the spears at. Oh, uh -huh. so even just that right. conversation seems to maybe form some sort of linkage. So, I'm now going to read a parable. A police officer sees a drunk searching for something under a lamppost and asks him what he's looking for. The drunk says he's lost his keys, and the officer takes pity on him and starts helping him look. After five minutes of looking, the officer says, are you sure you lost your keys here? No, the drunk replies, I lost them in the park. Then why are you searching over here? The officer asks, the drunk looks back at him blearily for a moment, then shrugs, it's brighter over here. So explain why you urge readers to be wary of demographics and personas. Because it's, it's so tempting. It, part of it is human nature. Part of it is history of our field of marketing. That in the old days, all we could do was to classify people by how they looked or just other you know, readily observable signals like that. And that's all we could do back in the Male, 1950s. Male, female, age, something yep, like that. Yep, exactly. And they still continue to use those kinds of demographic subgroups. And I'm saying... It's 2019. We've come a long way since then. We now have all of this rich data available. 
let's leverage that first and foremost. And then maybe if the demographics can add something to that, fine, we'll look at them too. But usually once you look at the behavioral data, which is much harder to do, it requires a little bit more math, a little bit more courage, there's nothing left for the demographics to explain. Uh, so I, it just drives me crazy that companies continue to adopt different kinds of demographic targeting um, and, and don't even think twice about it. But can customer lifetime value, if done correctly uh, or found, be used to create better personas? It can be, yes. Okay, so I, I have real mixed feelings about personas because uh, on one hand, in most cases, personas are just demographics on steroids. So instead of looking just at you know age, income, this, that, we'll create this composite profile. So we have you know busy Betty, working Wanda, you know housewife Harriet, whatever. I just hate that stuff. All they are, are com composite demographics. But on the other hand, and to your point, Doug, once I calculate lifetime values. And I look at, okay, so who are all the people over there with the biggest numbers and, and kind of what is it that, that makes them, what, what traits do they have in common? Well, we start talking about personas again. But in this case, at least the way that we're coming at it is driven by lifetime value. So we're not coming up with these personas just because they're kind of cute and the infographics look nice, but because they really do have this, this, this underlying connection that those people, maybe not every one of them, but that group tends to have higher lifetime value. Yeah, let's go after people like that. So, so layering different kinds of characteristics on top of the lifetime values is, is very powerful. It's very important to be able to use the lifetime values. But it's important that it really is driven first and foremost by the lifetime values and not just our intuition of the demographics. Agreed. And I also had the feeling, or I, was, I guess I was reminded, that a lot of buyer persona work is, is not very well done. <laughs> and uh, I think that may have been part of you know, what your concern might be, if I, could, if I could speak for you. And I would urge listeners to read another book that's been on the podcast about buyer personas called Buyer Personas by Adele Ravella. And I don't know that the word demographic is even in the book, but nice. you should start with CLV. But then in terms of doing it correctly, it's, there's like about five insights that she recommends you find out, which I think if you link that with CLV, you are going to be off to the races and you will become the marketer every CEO wants to hire because the results will be great. So let me read just one other part. Uh, it's such a readable book. Did I mention that? The meat of customer development can be summed up through two questions that are so well known that they're often used as punchlines. Professor, you had me at the word punchlines. Okay, here are the two punchlines. <laughs> do you want fries with that? And number two, do you want to supersize it? <laughs> so how uh, can customer centricity be used to improve the retention of your current customers and, and the development of them? So companies obsess over retention and development. Right? After bringing these customers in, what can we do to fatten them up and make them better customers? And I, I'm, I'm overstating things a little bit, but traditionally, all companies know is cross-selling and upselling. Uh, so, you know, the, so cross-selling is the do you want fries with that, and upselling is do you want to supersize it. And it's just comes so second nature to us, whether we're talking about fast food, whether we're talking about telecommunications or financial services or whatever. And the problem is we're so ingrained with cross-selling and upselling that 
that often all we think about in terms of, of customer development. Uh, and companies think, oh, well, we're just very sophisticated about it. We use all of our data to determine what's the next thing we should be putting in front of the customer. And I'm saying, can't we do better than that? I mean, isn't there more to life than just cross-selling and upselling as, as ways to, to make customers better? Uh, and so, uh, again, I'm, I'm not criticizing uh, cross-selling and upselling. They're actually vitally important. But but they should just let's kind of put them in their place and talk about a broader variety of retention and development tactics that actually can be more effective uh, in a lot of different settings. So they are actually two very different things: retention and development. But they're often muddied together. Why is yes. that? Why is that dangerous? Yeah, it's a, it is a problem. You see, th- th- there's there's actually good reasons for it because. If you can do things to deepen the relationship with the existing customer, you'll probably keep them around longer as well. So, so there's, there's, no, there's no question that there are legitimate ties between them and tactics that help you accomplish one will also help you accomplish the other. But the problem is then we start to lose sight of, of strategically what is it that we're trying to achieve. So what we try to do in the book is instead of just focusing on retention and development, which again are kind of confounding what we call offense and defense, right. is let's talk about those two things separately. What is it that we're trying to do here? Is our main objective to fatten up customers or is the main objective to keep them around longer? Uh, and then focus on tactics you know, with, with those objectives in mind instead of, well, if we do this, we'll do both. Because sometimes you want to have a little more of a laser focus on one versus the other. Right. So <clears throat> let's talk about customer experience. There have been a number of books on the podcast about customer experience. And you, know, the, you, you can argue that the experience that your customers have is in many ways the most powerful marketing. Uh, you can't treat them badly. Uh, they, if you give them an experience, it's wonderful. I just want to read, uh, again, one other quote from uh, page 51. You say, good customer service is akin to having clean bathrooms. You have to meet certain industry standards, and you want to take pride in doing a good job of it, but it's not a way to dramatically grow the business. Yes, this is possibly a provocative statement, especially in an era in which countless companies are doubling down on customer experience activities with the presumption that they will not only help hold on to customers, but will also grow their value. We believe CX, customer experience, is worthwhile but only within reason. Whoa, what are you talking about there? Yeah, that's marketing blasphemy. I could lose my license for that <laughs> stuff. I'm kind of worried that the marketing police are going to come knocking. Yes. But I, but I stand by it. Uh, and so many companies are, you know, let's, let's chase the customer around and give them a flute of champagne every time they're in the store. And, and here's the thing. Uh, customers are wildly different from each other. So let's let's take it from the top. Those those platinum customers, the ones who are the best, best, best. There's a good reason why. Again, it's all about the propensities and the preferences. They're born to like you, uh, and you don't need to keep reminding them, and you don't need to keep pushing other stuff on them because that can actually hurt more than it can help. Now, obviously, if they have a problem or if there's something that they, some kind of product that they want, you need to be super hyper responsive to them. But other than that, leave them alone. <laughs> Don't keep reminding them that you love them. And then the other end of the stream, you have customers who are one and done. They just want to buy this thing. They're not going to come back for years and years. And, and efforts to engage them and deepen the relationship and all that is, is, is not going to help. It's those customers in the middle. It's the ones that you kind of have a bit of a relationship with, but you could be doing more for them or with them. 
Okay, that's where the CX stuff really uh, starts to kick in. But again, it goes back to the idea that not all customers are created equal. And before we act, we need to know the value of this particular customer so we know whether to give them that champagne or not. Mm -hmm. So you see customer service is critical for companies, but interestingly, you say it's primarily for defensive purposes. Right. That? that is that first line of, of defense. When when uh, when the customer's having a problem and they're going to either call that number or post something on social media or, or something like that, um, yeah, you need to have some some very reasonable standards of, of accessibility and responsiveness. Honestly, I think a lot of companies uh, aren't doing great on that. They need to kind of have higher minimum standards. But that by itself is, is, again, it's out there for more problem prevention than it is for value enhancement. The value enhancement is going to come in to things like either a loyalty program or one that I'm really fond of and that we talk about there is the idea of having a premium service, a premium offering that very often we're not doing enough with those customers at the top. And they actually want even more from us and they're willing to pay for it. But just because that premium offering might not be broadly appealing because only maybe, you know, 10 or 15% of the customers might buy it. We go, ah, the economics don't favor it. But if we could see it through the lens of lifetime value enhanced, um, then it's, then it's, it's a no brainer. Yeah. Yeah. So CRMs play a vital role. Is it, is it possible to even have a value-based strategy if a company's not using a CRM? You are correct that you must have CRM to do the customer centricity thing, but the reverse is not true. That is, having a CRM system does not guarantee that you're customer centric. In fact, most companies, <clears throat> they develop their CRM system, they throw a lot of money at all this technology, this and that, and then they kind of sit back and just wait for the money to come raining down from the sky. It's not that easy. And setting up these systems is just no good unless you understand what it is that you're looking for, what it is that you're trying to accomplish, and to recognize and, and celebrate the differences among your customers. So, yeah, CRM is not, is, is not going to be useful if all you're going to do is come up with a one-size-fits-all version 2.0 of the product. Right. It's, there's so much technology purchased that reminds me of the gym memberships that are purchased uh, at the beginning of each year, where people think that just by buying it, uh, like you said, th the money will rain down. Things will happen. Well, actually, you have to you have to go to the gym, <laughs> right? Once you're there, uh -huh. you have to probably do a bit of exercising, as well as a few other things to uh, get the results you're looking for. So, one other question: Why does it matter if a company is driving the majority of its revenue from purchases made just by new customers, as as long as the sales targets are being met? Because we're interested in the future. And and the, the issue is there's a lot of companies, and you, you referred to chapter two, where we talk about acquisition addiction. Let's yes. just keep acquiring, acquiring, acquiring. Yes. Uh, and the problem is there's no guarantee that those customers are going to stick around. And so we want to look at the, at the health of a revenue stream, not just how many top line dollars you're bringing in, but how often will those people be repeat purchasing? I mean, that's why you're acquiring customers is not just to get that transaction, but it's to build the relationship. And so it's vitally important to have some sense about, are we acquiring the right kinds of customers here? And we see a lot of companies out there that are just doing the acquisition thing because either that's all they know or that seems to be satisfying their investors. 
but they really owe it to themselves and their investors to be looking deeper and, and saying, you know, is this is this kind of sustainable revenue or is it, you know, here today, gone tomorrow? Yeah, is it a leaky bucket? I think you talked about Blue Apron at that point in the book. Is that right? We do. There's so many companies out there that just, you know, hate us. Blue Apron is one. Another uh, even more current one is Wayfair, the online furniture <laughs> company. Uh, you know, I admire a lot of things about them, but they're kind of uh, exhibit A of a company suffering through acquisition addiction and getting rewarded for it because their investors aren't asking the, the, the tough questions. So we're not afraid to name names. When we put these things out there, we're not just saying, theoretically, this could happen or that could happen. Uh, I have the privilege of being able to look at the data from or for a lot of different companies and doing the math to 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 uncover the health of their revenue streams. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm very happy to talk about companies that are actually sometimes undervalued and others where the outlook isn't so rosy. Excellent. Well, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Well, you've heard me say it over and over and over, Doug, so I've got to say it one more time. It's celebrate heterogeneity. You know, a lot of marketers, um, they don't want to think about the difference across their customers. It's complicated. They just want to come up with the message or the product. That's not going to work. Your customers are vastly different from each other, <clears throat> and it's your job to figure out who the really good ones are. So those differences across the customers aren't just a nuisance. They're an opportunity. So look at those differences, find the good ones, and then you're off and running. Oh, great answer. So what books have inspired your work and, and career? So uh, because I'm this, uh, this kind of statistical quant guy, uh, I actually, this, this might sound horrible, but I, I find a lot of inspiration in, in books that uh, make the general public aware of kind of the true nature of, of quantitative patterns. So, for instance, I'm a big fan of Nate Silver, mm. who, who a lot of people would know about, The Signal and the Noise, his book. Um, maybe a little bit less familiar to your listeners, but still, you know, a super popular author would be uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb. He wrote uh, The Black Swan mm. and uh, and just all kinds of books about uh, just about kind of randomness and about how your typical normal distributions don't uh, ordinarily apply. So I'm looking at kind of popularized versions of, of statistics to get people to kind of get past their fears and recognize that these patterns are not only of great importance commercially, but they're actually kind of interesting as well. Hmm. Do you like those kinds of books in part because you're watching how they're explaining perhaps concepts you're already familiar with? Yeah, that's actually a super good point of it. Uh, yeah, that, that even though the, these folks are often coming from, from different directions, uh, and sometimes I don't entirely agree with the, the assessments that they're making, but I love to see the ways that they're trying to demystify some of the, this hard quant stuff. The examples they use, the particular choice of words. So yeah, so I actually, it's a, it's a super good point, Doug, that I care as much about how they're saying it uh, as what they're saying. It's really, really important. We're all in it together to try to, to demystify and, and get people on board with, with some of this quant stuff. Yes. So are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or looking forward to reading or walk down the halls at uh, Wharton and heard other guys working on? 
I am literally looking at the top of my, my to-read pile over here. Again, a lot of them are kind of nerdy quant books, and one that I think is kind of accessible. It's actually a, a, not written by a Wharton colleague, but a, a marketing professor at the University of Toronto, a guy named uh, Avi Goldfarb, and a couple of other practitioner co-authors. It's called Prediction Machines, uh, the subtitle being The Simple Economics of Artificial Intelligence. So trying to take all of that big data, machine learning, AI stuff, and kind of, instead of just gee whiz technology, kind of looking it through kind of a more cool, objective lens of, of economics. And even though I'm not an economist, I'm a fan of, of how economics uh, or economists can evaluate uh, domains where, uh, where kind of the general public might be uh, being led astray. Oh, interesting. So how best can listeners learn more about you and this book? Well, uh, for one thing, I'm uh, easily findable. Uh, uh, so uh, my main way of operating is on Twitter. Uh, I love uh, using Twitter to, to keep conversations going and to kind of um, echo interesting things that I read. So Fader P is my Twitter handle. Love to connect with people on LinkedIn. So just uh, search my name and it comes right up. And got to give, I mentioned it before, but a big shout out to my, my current startup, Theta Equity Partners. That is ThetaEquity.com. And I'm saying that not because I'm trying to sell stuff to anybody. We're just hey, working with private equity that. firms. But it's actually really interesting. Lots of case studies there of some of these companies like Blue Apron and Wayfair and others and how we kind of dissect them through a marketing lens uh, and some, some, uh, some, some good content there about customer centricity and customer-based corporate valuation. Terrific. Well, we're going to make it even easier for the listeners by putting links uh, at your episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. We're going to include links to your LinkedIn profile, your Twitter handle, your company, and oh, some other good things we, we can find. We're also going to link to all the books that you've you've mentioned or that have been mentioned on the show. Uh, so also, uh, I, I would hope that listeners can reach out to you and connect with you and thank you for being a guest. Come on, listener, help us out here. <laughs> and for you, dear listener, if you are listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode on your podcast player and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is The Customer Centricity Playbook, Implement a Winning Strategy Driven by Customer Lifetime Value. The authors are Peter Fader and Sarah Toms. Peter, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you so much, Doug. I really appreciate your, your interest in the book and your willingness to help spread the gospel about it. And that closes the book on episode 222 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Special thanks to our sponsor Blinkist to support the Marketing Book Podcast and start your free Blinkist trial or get 20% off your yearly plan. Visit Blinkist.com slash marketingbookpodcast or just click on the link at marketingbookpodcast.com. And please join us next time as we welcome Mike Lieberman to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about the book he's co-authored with Eric Kalis, Smash the Funnel, The Cyclonic Buyer Journey, a new map for sustainable, repeatable, predictable revenue generation. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. This episode was produced by Sean Armstrong.